And I'll encourage us as we continue to worship and to call to memory the things that God has done and the things that he calls us to in his word to turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. We're going to be looking at uh, part of chapter 10 and then over into chapter 11. We'll be looking at 1 Corinthians chapter 10 beginning in verse 14 down through verse 22 and then over in chapter 11 beginning in verse 17 through the end of the chapter. Excuse me. In this section, Paul begins to shift his attention as we've been looking at, uh, at, at his um, encouragement and his instructions to the church at Corinth. He begins to shift his attention in this letter from the issue of food sacrifice to idols, which we've looked at over these last couple of weeks, and, and the, uh, the use or misuse of the freedoms and the rights we have in Christ in relationship to others. And he begins to deal now with various questions or um, practices regarding the gathering of the church in worship in in chapters 11 through 14. And we'll look at some of those in the coming weeks. But in in this sense, they were also experiencing division and disorder in the church that was rooted in their in their pride and their kind of selfish indulgence rather than their humble service to one another. And in both of these sections which we'll read today in chapters 10 and chapter 11, Paul addresses the issue of the Lord's Supper and its meaning and its use. And so that's what we're going to look at this morning. Unless you think this is a a convenient ruse for me to skip over the first part of chapter 11, where Paul gives some cryptic instructions regarding men and women and having heads covered and uncovered, We'll come back to that next Sunday, so uh, come back and we won't uh, neglect to address that, uh, but we're going to look at the, this section in chapter 10 and chapter 11. So let's give ear to God's word as I read from 1 Corinthians chapter 10, beginning in verse 14. <clears throat> Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. I speak as sensible people. Judge for yourselves what I say. The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. Consider the people of Israel are not those who eat the sacrifices, participants in the altar. What do I imply then, that food offered to idols is anything, or that an idol is anything? No, I imply that what pagans sacrifice, they offer to demons and not to God. I do not want you to be participant with demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. Shall we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than he? And picking up in verse 11, I mean verse 17 of chapter 11. But in the following instructions, I do not commend you, because when you come together, it's not for the better, but for the worst. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you, and I believe it in part. For there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. When you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry. Another gets drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? 
Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. For I have received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it, and he said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. So let a person examine himself then and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. And that is why many of you are weak and ill and some have died. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. So then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home, so that when you come together, it will not be for judgment. And about the other things, I will will give directions when I come. Let's pray together. Father, would you grant illumination and understanding and faith to believe and to obey your word and your will. Would you make the, mouths, the, the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts pleasing in your sight, O Lord, for you are our rock and our redeemer. Amen. So we recently just celebrated Valentine's Day, and for some, it's a day when we might plan something special with someone who is uh, special to us, whom we love dearly, and often it involves a special meal, maybe uh, going out to a nice restaurant, maybe fixing a, a special meal at home, and there is preparation, there is anticipation, But what makes that meal special is not how expensive it is, how fancy the restaurant we go to is, not how uh, good the food is, but what makes it special is who the meal is with and what the occasion signifies or represents to us. It's a meal that's specifically meant to show the love we have for that person or for the people we're celebrating with. But we all know how easy it is for this annual reminder of love to simply become a kind of yearly obligation that we have to participate in. And we can end up forgetting the real purpose behind what we do. And once a month here at Ambassador, we gather in our worship for this special meal around the table of our Lord to celebrate the sacrament of communion or or the Lord's Supper or the Eucharist, as different traditions call it. It's a special meal. It's not because it's a, a fancy banquet, not because of, of, of uh, how we go about participating in it, but it's a special meal because of who it is with and what it signifies and means for us. It's a meal that Jesus prepared, that he invited his disciples, whom he loved, to eat 
with him at that last Passover evening before he would be handed over to suffer and be crucified. And just as the Passover pointed to to God's deliverance of his people out of slavery in Egypt, Jesus comes and he fills this meal, this old covenant meal with new significance and meaning as he instituted a new covenant feast, if you will, to commemorate God's ultimate deliverance from sin through Jesus' own body and bloodshed on the cross. So that Paul could say earlier in in his letter to the Corinthians in chapter 5, Christ is our Passover lamb sacrificed for us. But I wonder how many Christians, how many of us here this morning, as we come, as we partake of this sacrament of the Lord's Supper, might just be thinking, Now, what is it exactly that we are doing, and and why is it that we are doing it? How often do we come to the Lord's table just because it's what we do once a month, without giving any thought to its significance? Or maybe we know it is significance, but we're not very sure why. Or even we may know why, but we don't really see the practical connection that it has between this event and our everyday life, other than it makes our worship service a little bit longer on Sunday mornings. Well, that's why the Apostle Paul gets a little bit out of shape with the church at Corinth when he hears that they, in essence, are are misunderstanding and misusing the Lord's Supper in a way that, as he puts it, is not for the better, but for the worst, How would you like that on the Google reviews of your church? (laughs) You're gathering together one star. It's not actually helping. it's, It's actually harming the fellowship. Well, what was going on? Why would Paul say that? Well, in this case, as we've seen, it's good to understand the context, what what was probably happening there in Corinth. And the fact is, in the early church, they didn't have buildings like we have. They didn't go to a particular place that was designated the church to gather. They gathered in homes together. And often that gathering didn't just take place for an hour or so on Sunday, but it would be a, a, a time to eat together and to fellowship together and to sit under the teaching of God's word together and to participate. Participate in, in the covenant meal of the Lord's Supper together. And so they would gather in, in the home of someone, probably someone more wealthy who had a home big enough for them to, to gather in, as we see in other places in the New Testament. And while they were gathering to worship God, they would also share that meal together. And they, kind of like we may do today, they might have brought different dishes in, or maybe the host provided that meal for them to eat in. But the problem was their attitude and their actions as they gathered for this time together did not reflect. In fact, it became became directly opposed to the very thing that the sacramental meal of the church stood for. While they were gathering supposedly to worship God and celebrate their union with him through Christ's selfless sacrifice to rejoice in the bond and the, and the fellowship and communion they had together as God's people, they were instead dividing up into factions and cliques. They were thinking of themselves as they, as they went ahead and, and ate before others arrived or they, they excluded the poor and the lower caste who couldn't actually bring anything or they gave the, the better food and the better wine to, to those who were uh, more to, uh, uh, socially uh, acceptable and in the upper classes. And they were indulging themselves in a way 
that looked more like a pagan idol feast than the church of God. In other words, their worship had become very worldly. And Paul is a little incredulous. He says, what's going on? (laughs) He said, what? If you just want a social gathering with your close friends, you can do that at home. But what you are doing here is not eating of the Lord's Supper, but despising the Lord's church and humiliating and excluding those for whom Christ dies. And he says, there is no commendation in that. But actually there is condemnation. There is judgment from the Lord. You're humiliating, excluding one another and those for whom Christ died. So Paul's stern rebuke serves as both a warning to us of the significance and the sanctity of this shared meal that we gather together. But it also serves as a welcome a welcome into the blessings and the benefits that are meant to be a part of our coming together as God's people to worship our King and to participate together in the Lord's Supper as we do today. And so Paul uses this opportunity to remind them of what it is that Jesus instituted and gave to his disciples and which in turn have been delivered on through the ages to his church. And in it, we are reminded this morning of the significant purpose and the practical benefits of regularly gathering around the Lord's table. And so I want to just take a few minutes to to point to some of the, the, the purposes, the meaning behind the table as we gather and as Paul reminds us here in these passages. The first is commemoration. The Lord's Supper commemorates or, or helps us remember the significance of Jesus' sacrifice on the cross. Twice, Paul reminds us in both the eating of the bread and the drinking of the cup that Jesus told his disciples what? Do this in remembrance of me. Do this in remembrance of me. The bread and the wine are, are visible, tangible, sensory reminders to us of the very vivid, tangible, real, historical, sacrificial nature of Christ's life and his death on the cross. And I don't know about you, but, but as I said to the kids, I quickly and easily forget things. If Kathy wants me to do something or pick something up for her, the words, okay, I'll remember, are barely off my lips, then I've already forgotten what she's asked me to do or pick up. She has to give me reminders, and she's very patient with me in that. But even more so, it's easy to forget significant events and important people in our lives if we don't purposefully seek to remember, seek to to be reminded And one of the blessings of living in this digital age is we can, as I said, take photos and pictures. We can record those things to help us remember special moments or occasions or people. And God knows that we are prone to forget to whom and and to what we owe our lives and our salvation. As God's people, having experienced God's miraculous deliverance out of Egypt, we're getting ready, ready to enter the promised land. God reminds them over and over again through Moses, do not forget the Lord your God. Do not forget the Lord your God. And he knew when they got into their houses, when they got settled in the land, when they started working and, and seeing the, the, the produce, when they got busy with their lives, that they would easily forget how they got there, and who brought them there. And sure enough, in his final words, which we read in Deuteronomy 32, even before they entered the land, Moses notes that they were already 
unmindful of the rock that bore you and forgetting the God who gave you birth. And that's why God established the Passover feast. It was a reminder to them that their deliverance was not due to anything that they had done, but only by by what he had done, by his grace, through the shed blood of the lamb sacrificed for them. So Jesus comes and he fills this, the meaning of Passover by becoming the Lamb of God, sacrificed once and for all for our sins in order that we might not forget. And he gives us this meal as, uh, as, as a visible reminder, a commemoration of his life and his sacrifice and his body and his blood shed for me. It is every, every time we come to it, it's like a picture, a snapshot or a, or, or a living parable that we partake of to remind us who it is that loves us, who it is that sacrificed his life for us. And so we come to the Lord's table to slow down and remember the great work of redemption that Jesus accomplished for us. So it's a commemoration, but it's also a participation. The Lord's Supper is more than just a visible, visible trigger, if you will, for our memory. It also involves us personally in receiving the benefits that are secured for us in Jesus' life and death and resurrection. When Jesus gave the bread and the wine to his disciples, he said, he didn't say, this is like my body. This is a picture of my blood. He said, this is my body and this is my, the new covenant in my blood. In other words, Jesus makes a significant and a direct connection between these, these common elements and himself in such a way that he can speak of them as one and the same. Now, there are different views of, of what exactly Jesus meant by this and what happens as existentially with regard to the elements as we partake of the Lord's Supper. We don't share the view that, that the bread and the wine are literally transformed into Christ's physical body and blood or that Christ is somehow physically present over, in, and above, and around the elements. But Jesus' words do speak of his presence in this sacrament in a manner that marks a a kind of taking in and ingesting if you will an appropriation of himself as our crucified and risen savior such that it can be said that we are feeding upon Christ by faith Jesus shocked the Pharisees in John 6 when he said, whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life. And again, he wasn't talking about some kind of cannibalistic ritual, but that by his spirit, we take in as our own the benefits and the blessings, the privileges and the responsibilities of his sacrifice for us. When he died, we died. When he rose from the dead, we are raised with him and receive new life in him. By faith, we become participants in and recipients of all that Jesus is for us in his death and resurrection. That's Paul's whole point back in chapter 10. (laughs) He says, this cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? That word is the Greek word koinonia, which we typically translate fellowship. But it doesn't mean just hanging out together. It doesn't mean just being present with in some you know, distant fashion. 
It means that we, we are united. We share in a communion. That means a, a common union, a, a fellowship, and, and a, a, a participation with in such a way that we are in Christ and Christ is in us. And as a result, we are together and united and participate with one another in our lives in the body of the Christ. Which is why Paul says... You can't partake of the Lord's table on Sunday and dine with the devil during the week by serving and participating in the idolatries of the world. You see, our fellowship with Christ precludes participation or fellowship with any other thing that would, that would compromise that relationship, that would, that would draw us away from or would, would keep us from that, that significant allegiance an exclusive allegiance that we have to Christ. And we'll come back to that in a minute, but recognize that what we do here at the table has real implications for our nourishing and our, our strengthening and the sustaining of our faith and life together with Christ and with one another. We are joined together as one body with him and with one another, even as we come and celebrate around this table. And so commemoration and participation. And third, Paul talks about proclamation. We remember, we participate, and we proclaim. The Lord's Supper serves as a witness to the fact of God's great redemption. Unlike baptism, which we undergo once, the Lord's Supper is to take place often and always until the Lord returns and this is significant because even though the Lord's Supper is a, is a family meal, it's for believers only, it's not some private meal, it's not some secret ritual, it's not something we go off and do when others aren't present as if we want to you know, exclude people from seeing what we're doing. While the Lord's Supper is for those who have trusted Christ alone for salvation, it is also perhaps the most visible and dramatic and clear presentation of the wonderful news of God's grace which we call the gospel. It is the death of, in the death of Christ, in it we see the death of Christ for the forgiveness of sins and the life of Christ offered up as the only means of our salvation and satisfaction in this life and eternity. And that is held up for all to see. It is the heralding, heralding of the great invitation that Jesus makes for all who would come, to come and to, to receive the gift of life offered up in him. So if you're here today and you're not a follower of Jesus Christ, we say welcome. <laughs> we are glad you are here. You shouldn't feel embarrassed. We're not going to ask you to get up and leave when we come to, the, to partake of the table. Rather, I want to encourage you to listen to the words of Jesus. This is my body given for you. This is the new covenant in my blood shed for the forgiveness of your sins. These are words of tenderness and compassion and security and satisfaction. Words of deep, deep love. Who do you know that would offer themselves up like this and die such a death that you might live? So the Lord's Supper is not just a celebration of the gospel. It's a proclamation of its truth. And as such, it's also an invitation for us to lay down our pride 
to humble ourselves before the Lord and before one another, to confess our sin, to feed on the bread of life, to drink in the the wine of forgiveness and the grace that is found through Christ's sacrifice alone. And it's a proclamation that we worship a living God who's conquered death in his death. And so we have commemoration and participation and proclamation. And fourthly, anticipation. We proclaim his death until he returns. The proclamation of Christ's death in the Lord's Supper is a proclamation of the death of death. And the anticipation of life received and the hope promised in Christ's return. Sometimes I talk about the Lord's Supper in a way as an appetizer in anticipation of the, of the greater feast and the greater banquet. It's kind of like a rehearsal dinner. If you go to a wedding, you go the night before into a rehearsal dinner. And I personally love the rehearsal dinner because in it there's remembering of things that have happened in the past. There's sharing of, of, with, of those who are close family and, and who love together. But it's not the final event. It's anticipation of the the greater event that is to come when the the bride and the groom will share their love and be united as one in their life together. And the Lord's Supper holds with it the promise that the best is yet to come. We who have been betrothed and joined together with our beloved Savior Savior, are eagerly looking to his return when he will come and and take us up and, and consummate his kingdom making all things right and welcoming us to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And so in the Lord's Supper, we lift our eyes from this world to the next. And we find comfort and consolation that no matter how bad things may get here, we are citizens of a heavenly kingdom. And we look forward to a greater feast in which we will gather with the Lord and all his people in complete joy and love and satisfaction. Which is why Paul warns us of the last thing, examination. Not to take this meal lightly. Not to misuse it as an excuse to live however we want. Or to presume on God's grace in Christ. Not to despise its meaning and purpose by coming together without even thinking or considering whether our lives and testimony individually and as a church actually reflect the reality of what we are partaking in and professing as his people. Not to come to the table proclaiming Christ's forgiveness when we are holding grudges or refusing forgiveness to others. Not to pretend or presume that we can come here on Sundays and feed upon the grace and receive the benefits of his sacrifice while during the rest of the week we seek satisfaction in the empty cisterns of this world we worship at the altars of power or pride or possessions or pleasure we cannot claim union with Christ and and love for one another while we remain self-serving and divided as a people we cannot come seeking the protection and provision of Christ while we constantly expose ourselves and embrace the promises of our spiritual enemy the devil and his ways And so Paul says, be careful that you don't eat the bread or drink the cup in an unworthy manner such that we be guilty concerning the body and the blood of Christ. But rather, he says, let us examine ourselves, seeking to discern what it is that Christ has done 
and what it is he has called us to in the body of Christ together. That's why we encourage our younger children to wait until they, they have a, a grasp and a, a personal embracing of their, of their own sin and Christ's sacrifice for them and desire to enter into communing membership of the church. But Paul is not saying that we somehow have to reach some level of spiritual maturity or we somehow have to clean ourselves up or make ourselves worthy to come to the table. He's not saying that we can only come if we have hours and days of personal introspection and, 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 and repentance for all our sin. But he's saying that we should not come indifferent. We should not come lightly. We should not come in an ignorant, irreverent, or careless, uninformed way. This is not just a, a, a religious ritual or a ceremonial formality. This is not a casual dining experience for our own pleasure and peace. It's not just a snack that we have at church once a month. That's how the Corinthians were beginning to treat it. And that's how we at times can treat it as if this is our table where God is beholden to bless us and, and give us what he promises. And Paul says, don't do that. Examine yourself. Discern what God has called us to. Look at our lives together in the body of Christ. And yes, repent of our sin where we need to and come to receive God's mercy and grace offered at the table. He says, let us examine and judge ourselves truly in coming before the Lord such that we do not experience his judgment, but rather learn from his loving discipline. Paul says, that's how the, he says, this is a reason why so many of the Corinthians were weak and ill and some have died. And it's hard to know what Paul exactly means here, but suffice it to say that he makes a connection between their flippant treatment of their gatherings for worship and the disunity that they express in their relationships, and the pain and the trials they find themselves experiencing in life. And so he says, let us examine and judge ourselves truly in coming before the Lord. And so the Lord's Supper serves twofold. As a warning against spiritual compromise, Paul says again, you're sensible people. It should be obvious to us that you can't serve two masters, and the Lord's Supper serves as a regular corrective, if you will, in a world filled with temptations and false promises. It reminds us of where our allegiance lies, to whom we are joined. It reminds us to look at our lives and see where there may be spiritual compromise. It provides an occasion for us to look afresh in love to Jesus and in, in those we love in the body of Christ and ask the hard questions. Are there relationships that need to be mended because of my pride? Are there patterns of sin I'm not dealing with because of pleasure or shame? Are there worldly ambitions that I'm pursuing because of my desire for wealth or security? Are there people to whom I'm hostile or prejudiced because of a sense of superiority or maybe inferiority? The Lord's Supper serves as a renewed motivation for us to turn from our sin, to flee idolatry, to come again to fellowship with Christ and receive his grace in the gospel. And the Lord's Supper 
also serves as a welcome into communion with Christ and his people. Think of how excited and awed you might feel if you were invited to a state dinner with the president and with with all the powerful people from all over the world. Think about the the preparations you might make, the the anticipation you would feel, the sense of of maybe fear and, and awe and unworthiness at being included. Well, brothers and sisters, when we gather as God's people and come to the Lord's table, we come and are welcomed by the king of the universe. And we gather as those who are are joined together with him and united together with one another, called to be his ambassadors, fellow heirs to all the riches of his kingdom. And it's not because of our power. It's not because of our position. It's not because of our heritage or our station in life, but because we are the least and the humble and the needy. You've heard of the fellowship of the ring. Well, this is the fellowship of the king, the king of kings. And all that Christ is for us, we share in together here at his table. Forgiveness of sins, peace with God, a righteousness that is not our own, but is a gift from God. The acceptance of adoption, the security of protection, the encouragement and support of a loving family, the guidance of God's truth, the provision of his grace, the generosity and and the gift of life and the hope of heaven. All of these things and more are ours in Christ and in the Lord's Supper. And it serves as a regular means by which we together are nourished, strengthened, reminded and refreshed in these realities. And so it is a family meal. And we who are brothers and sisters in Christ, united in the common bond of the Spirit of God by one faith and one Lord, one baptism, join together in love and partake together of the rich and glorious reality that Christ is with us and he is for us. And so whether you're partaking this morning for the first time or for the 5,000th time, Jesus invites you to come to the table, to dine with him, to dine on him, and to receive his love and to share his love together. And so as we prepare our hearts to come, let us us value this time. Let us desire it. Let Let us prepare for it and pursue it and partake of it with a humility and a passion and a joy. And as we do, let's show forth our love for God And his love for us as we love one another in a very real and tangible way. Not only here, but as we go out into the world with the ministry and the message that he has entrusted to us. Let's pray together. Father, as we come to your table now, we ask that you would remind us of these great truths. But not just remind us, Lord, you would open our hearts to receive them, to believe them, to be strengthened and nourished in our faith and our life together through them because they are truths which you yourself have embodied and have blessed us with in your son Jesus Christ. And so Lord, as we do come to this table, we ask that you would 
remind us of our need for your mercy and grace. That you would humble us before your holiness and your righteousness as a great and jealous God. But that you would also pour out your love and your forgiveness as one who has died for our sins, has risen to conquer death, and reigns eternally over us as your children. We ask these things humbly in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.